Please be seated. We come now where we will to the time of our worship service where we will fellowship with the Lord in his word and at the table. And he leads us through Psalm 19, verse 7. It says, The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. As Reverend Schwiso comes now to deliver the word to us, give attention to it, and be transformed from being simple to being wise. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Good to be with you today again. I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 15, and we will read verses 1 through 9 of 2 Samuel chapter 15. And uh, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Second Samuel 15, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the Word of God. After this it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and fifty men to run before him. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was, whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision, that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me. Then I would give him justice. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel, who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Now it came to pass, after forty years, that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord, For your servant took a vow while I dwelt at Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. This is God's word. Amen. You may be seated, and we'll uh, go to the Lord in prayer as we look to this passage. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your inspired word, uh, the treasure that it is to us that... It gives us instruction and wisdom, it equips us to walk in the way of righteousness, and it shows us our Lord Jesus Christ. And I do pray that as we look at this passage today, that uh, you would give us understanding, that we would better know your word, we would better know your, our, our own hearts, and uh, that we would look to Jesus in all of these things. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Well, if you saw your uh, little handout for the sermon in the bulletin, it's a rather straightforward title, Pride, a Case Study. (laughs) And sure enough, this passage is by far one of the most blatant and ostentatious descriptions of pride that you find anywhere in the Bible. And for the Christian, and in the Christian life, humility is supposed to be so basic as a characteristic of us. 
After all, we follow in the humble footsteps of our Savior Jesus Christ, who descended from the heights of glory down to this earth for the sake of our salvation and humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And so it's particularly important that if we are to follow in his footsteps, if we are to be conformed to his image, that we be those who are also humble. And there used to be a consciousness in the Western world about how deadly pride was and is. If you look at the old lists from the medieval age of the seven deadly sins, what led off in that list was vainglory or pride. There was an awareness that pride is a very deadly thing. And yet today we are living in a time in which pride is seen as practically a virtue. And in light of the fact that it's seen as a virtue, it's, it's particularly important as disciples of Christ that we be aware of the great many manifestations this has uh, in order that we can diagnose our own hearts. And there is some wisdom found in a uh, letter of our brother Augustine, writing about 1,600 years ago. He wrote to a younger disciple named Dioscorus, and in this letter he emphasize the importance of humility in the Christian life. Now listen to what Augustine wrote many years ago. He says, My dear Dioscorus, I wish you to submit with complete devotion and to construct no other way for yourself of grasping and holding the truth than the way constructed by the Lord. This way, the way of Christ, is first humility, second humility, third humility. And however often you should ask me, I would say the same, not because there are no other precepts to be explained, but if humility does not proceed and accompany and follow every good work we do, and if it is not set before us to look upon and beside us to lean upon and behind us to fence us in, pride will take from our hand any good deed we do while we are in the very act of taking pleasure in it. Well, we're going to see in the case of Absalom that pride preceded, accompanied, and followed everything that he did rather than humility. Now, and in calling this a, a case study, my purpose is not to look at Absalom from afar and to look down on Absalom, actually, uh, because in doing so, we might find ourselves caught in pride of being not like Absalom. And as we will find out, there are many ways in which we will see ourselves in Absalom as well. Well, Let me give you a little bit of review to give you a sense of where this passage comes in the flow of 2 Samuel. In chapter 13 of 2 Samuel, Absalom murdered his own brother, Amnon, because he was seeking revenge for his sister Tamar, whom Amnon had, had raped. And after that, Absalom fled Israel. He he was escaping punishment from his father, David, and so he fled to the land of Geshur in order to escape punishment. He was there for some years. But in chapter 14, he appealed to David to bring him back. He wanted to return to the land and still escape punishment, even though he was deserving of the death penalty for what he had done. And he did come back. David was very merciful to let Absalom return. But he came back not in the very best circumstances. He did not come back 
repentant. He did not come back humbled by what he had done. Now, if you look at the end of 2 Samuel uh, chapter 14, verse 33, and then you read it with chapter 15, verse 1, you will see something very interesting. Chapter 14, verse 33. Joab went to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. Then the king kissed Absalom. And then chapter 15, verse 1. After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. Now, the inspired writer put the bowing down of Absalom to David right next to the very next act that Absalom does, which is to gather for himself chariots and horses and, and to parade himself about. This is a man who murdered his own brother, lived in exile for three years, and now by David's mercy is brought back to the kingdom, and he is not humbled. Where is the humility in this man? This man should be abased to the ground out of, after what he had done, and yet he goes right back to his, his proud ways. And so as we will find out with this, this description of, of Absalom, there's so many ways in which Absalom manifests this pride. And in this regard, it's going to be helpful for us to bring our own hearts to bear upon this text and to fall upon the sword of the word of God as the case may be and as the need may be in order to repent of our own ways in which pride has manifested itself. And so I'm going to focus just on these first nine verses. We will not look at the uh, stealing of the kingdom by Absalom today, but just these first nine verses. And there are particularly five aspects of pride that I would like to focus on. The first is that pride loves attention. Pride loves attention. The second is that pride may be very industrious. The third is that pride flatters. The fourth is that pride thinks too highly of itself. And the fifth is that pride cloaks itself in religion. And so you don't have to necessarily remember all those headings if you didn't write them down, but we will return to each one as we proceed. And I must warn you, as we look at each of these things, this could be painful at points, uh, but that is good for us as we bring ourselves and consider the word of God. So look at verse 1 again. After this, it happened that Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men to run before him. And so we see Absalom wanted attention. He wanted people to focus on him, to see him as great, as kingly, he was setting himself up to take the kingdom from his father, of course. Now, as you look at this description, it always struck me as rather ridiculous. It's, it's so ostentatious what Absalom does here. As far as we know, King David did not do this. It's nowhere recorded in 2 Samuel that King David paraded himself around in Jerusalem with these 50 men going before his chariot and and so Absalom, he's, he's making such a show of himself as he goes around Jerusalem. 
He wants to be seen. He wants to be appreciated. He wants to be esteemed by others. This is a very common indication of pride, brothers and sisters. It's, it's this desire to be noticed, to be appreciated, and particularly to have the preeminence. We are often driven by this desire to be validated by other people, and especially if we are given to this temptation of, of people-pleasing, it's especially important to us what others think about us. This can be a very subtle thing in our hearts, as is the case with pride in general. It can be such a subtle thing, and it can take so many forms. And one of these forms is this desire for attention. Of course, it's not wrong to want to be loved by others. It's not wrong to want to be in a relationship. It's not, uh, that itself is not the problem, but the problem becomes when we have this inordinate desire to be appreciated above others to be preeminent above others. And we get at times very frustrated when we don't feel that we have gotten the due that we think is deserving for ourselves. We think, what? People aren't mentioning my name. They seem to be talking about this other person. And then this this pride, it, it, it comes out in our hearts, this desire to be appreciated and noticed. Now, another aspect of Absalom's pride is that he exalted himself in his desire for attention and for preeminence. He, he exalted himself, and that's exactly what the text says. It says, Absalom provided himself with chariots and horses and 50 men. Peter writes in 1 Peter, he says, Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. That the exaltation of the Christian life is to be something that the Lord provides us. It is not something that we set up for ourselves. If we decide that we are going to lift ourselves up, we are warned that whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Absalom wanted to exalt himself to this place of prominence, and so he got the horses, he got the chariot, he got the 50 men in order to exalt himself. But in doing so, Absalom was setting himself up for destruction. Absalom wanted to be king, and in fact, he almost became king were it not for the providence of God, who in in chapter 18 catches Absalom by the hair in a tree and stops his entire quest for preeminence. That is what Absalom found himself in, in terms of his condition, as a result of his self-exaltation. And this is something that our Lord Jesus warns us about in the Gospels. As you look at some of the parables, you find this, particularly the parable of Luke chapter 14, verse 7. And and as I'm going to read some of these words from Luke 14, remember that these are the words of the Son of God who humbled himself from the heights of glory for your salvation. And these are his words to us as his disciples. Look at Luke 14, verse 7. 
So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and, and him come and say to you, Give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes... He may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so Jesus is saying to us, when you have the opportunity, take the lowest position. Find that place in which you can humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and in due time, he's going to exalt you. He's going to bring those blessings, blessings far greater than you're going to get by exalting yourself for a time. And it's so important that you and I remember that we are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the servant is not above his master. Our Lord walked that humble path for you and I, and, and we are to be no different. And we can walk that humble path with confidence, knowing that God is going to grant us much joy as we walk in his ways. And what peace comes in knowing that God will take care of our situation. He will take care of exalting us in due time. So that's the first thing that we see from Absalom's pride, is he, he loved attention and he exalted himself Secondly, we see pride may be very industrious. We see this in verse 2. Now Absalom would rise early and stand beside the way to the gate. So it was whenever anyone who had a lawsuit came to the king for a decision that Absalom would call to him and say, What city are you from? And he would say, Your servant is from such and such a tribe of Israel. Now, this manifestation of pride, the industriousness of pride, may not accompany every uh, instance of pride. Sometimes proud people are very lazy people. But not so with Absalom. He, he got up early to get to the job. He, he got up early in order to set himself up at the gate. He, he set his alarm for 5 a.m. He got up. He got dressed. He prepared himself, he got on his chariot, and he rode to the city gates of Jerusalem to set himself up. He was ready to steal the kingdom from his father. And so whenever a fellow Israelite came to the gate looking for help in a matter of justice, Absalom was there. Absalom was a very motivated young man. He had no problem getting up early and working hard as long as that effort contributed to his project of self-exaltation. Absalom was building his own personal Tower of Babel. And for a proud person, they may spare no expense and shun no labor if it contributes to their project of self-exaltation. It's pretty frightening that this can be one of the manifestations of pride, that we might actually work very hard but work hard for ourselves. And we know that the scriptures commend hard work. We know that the scriptures commend industriousness. 
The Bible tells us to rise up early, to be faithful in our work. Go to the ant. Consider the ant's ways. But the question then is really one of motive, isn't it? What makes the difference between good industrious labor versus proud industrious labor is who we're laboring for. Now, as long as someone is outside of Christ, as long as they do not have a a saving relationship with God, it's natural for that person to seek their own glory in all things. That's the way of fallen mankind as we seek out after our own glory. But if you live for Christ, everything should change. Everything that you live for is to be directed in reference to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. Absalom was a hard worker. He was working for the overthrow of his father, David. He was working unto this end of rebellion. But, and therefore, we must keep a close watch on our hearts to consider, what is it that I labor for? What is it that drives me? And for some time, I've been thinking about these verses in Romans chapter 14, verses 7 through 9. These are such helpful verses in thinking about our, our life purpose. What, what drives us? What is it that motivates us to get up out of bed every morning? Romans 14, verse 7. <clears throat> Paul writes, None of us lives to himself, and no one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and rose and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. And so this is Paul. He's writing to the Romans. This is in the context of speaking about Christian liberty concerning certain matters. And he reminds them, he says, okay, let's, let's not talk so much about holidays and food for a moment. Let's remember, who do we live for? What is fundamental? And he says, well, Jesus... He died and he rose again and he lives again in order that we might live for him. If you belong to Jesus Christ, you no longer live for yourself. You no longer die to yourself. He purchased you with his precious blood. You are no longer your own. And your life now is to be lived in constant reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Christians, we call Jesus Lord. That's basic to our confession of faith. In in Romans 10, it says, what do we say? Who is saved? If you confess Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so now, in Christ, all of our lives are to be lived in constant reference to the lordship of of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why in Colossians chapter 3, when Paul speaks to bondservants, he He tells them, what are you to labor for, or who are you to labor for? Colossians 3, verse 23. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Now, if these bondservants in Colossians 3 were thinking about how they were going to be rewarded for all their work by their earthly masters, they might have been very disappointed. It may very well be that they would have just been mistreated anyway. But if they're living and and working in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is providential over all, 
then they have good reason to work and to work faithfully and to work industriously because they serve the Lord Christ and they can expect the reward to come from him. And so may we also keep a close watch on our hearts that we consider what is it that that drives me, what motivates me unto any kind of hard work. May it not be our own personal projects, but may it be that everything we do, no matter what your calling is, be lived seeking the kingdom of Jesus Christ. So we go on now to verses 3 through 6, this additional description of Absalom. Absalom would say to him, Look, your case is good and right, but there is no deputy of the king to hear you. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me. Then I would give him justice. And so it was, whenever anyone came near to bow down to him, that he would put out his hand and take him and kiss him. In this manner, Absalom acted toward all Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And so Absalom was very gifted. There's, it's not a surprise, I think, that he was able to amass most of Israel behind him in this rebellion eventually. He was, we know that he, 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 was, he, had, he was a man of good looks. We learned that in chapter 14 because his hair was very heavy and, and that's described. But beyond that, he was also a very gifted talker. Absalom was the politician par excellence. He, he knew how to speak to people, to win people. And whenever anybody would bring a case to him, Absalom always affirmed the justice of their case. They were always right. Dill Ralph Davis, who comments on it, on this text, he puts it this way, Absalom never met a plaintiff with whom he did not agree. Whatever the situation was, Absalom says, your case is good and right. Now, was Absalom sincere in saying such a thing? Was he being honest? I don't think he really cared that much. It's clear that his main interest was winning the hearts of the people of of Israel and going towards rebellion. He, He flattered. He was interested in winning people to his side, and he didn't matter what he had to say to them to do that. Just say whatever is needed. Now, what is flattery, fundamentally? Well, a dictionary definition of flattery says that it is insincere praise given especially to further one's own interests. This is one of the ways in which pride can corrupt our hearts is that we... When we're driven by pride and a desire for preeminence, we want to win people to our side. We want people to appreciate us, and so we'll say anything in order to get that effect from them. In, in pride, we see people as these, these little pieces on a chessboard that we can move in a certain way to further our own interests. People are either a hindrance to our interests or they're useful, disposable or useful as the case may be. And in this way, Absalom was not acting according to love. 1 Corinthians 13 describes this definition of love. It says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. Absalom certainly did that. And love is not puffed up. 
Absalom, he was puffing himself up with, with all of this flattery that he was giving to people in order to win them to his side. And so it's this, this danger of flattery is that in flattering others with our speech, we actually lie. We're breaking the ninth commandment. Proverbs 26, verse 28 speaks about the danger of, of, of flattery. It says, a lying tongue hates those who are crushed by it, and a flattering mouth works ruin. This, this insincerity brings about destruction, as it did in the case of Absalom's rebellion. And so one of the subtle ways in which flattery might show up, it's probably less ostentatious in our cases than it is with Absalom. We, we, we sometimes just want to say the thing to people that we know will not be offensive, and that will cause them to like us. This can be the subtle heart motive that we are concerned about what others think about us. And so we find a way to say something that will affirm them in order for them to like us. And so it was with Absalom. Now next we see that Absalom's in his pride, he thought far too highly of himself. This is in verse 4. Listen to Absalom's words. He says, Oh, that I were made judge in the land, and everyone who has any suit or cause would come to me, then I would give him justice. And again, this is so ostentatious of, of Absalom. It's one thing to say this in your mind. Oh, that I was the highest and everybody appreciated me. That's often where this, this happens, is in the mind. It's, it's a bit... It's a bit gutsy to say it out loud like Absalom did, but he was saying this to all the people that came to him. People would come with their cases, and, and as, he, as they described their, their matter of justice for Absalom to help with, he would just throw it out there. He would say, oh, that I was the one that took care of this case for you. Absalom wanted to win their hearts, and so he was presenting himself as the solution to all of their problems. He's in essence saying, vote for me, and all your dreams are going to come true. All your problems are going to go away. I am going to get justice for you. And underneath all of this is an accusation against David that he's not taking care of things. David's not handling justice well. And this is the standard line that we sometimes find with politicians that we're told, if you will just vote for them, that all these other problems will go away. It's always very simplistic. And by saying this, that, oh, that I were judge in the land and everyone would come and I would give everyone justice, we see how highly Absalom thought of himself. He way overestimated his abilities to give justice to God's people. And this is one of the ways in which pride it blinds us, is that we begin to think that we are far more capable and far more valuable than we may actually be. And the Word of God speaks to this in Romans 12. As Paul was exhorting the Romans, he, he warns us about this overestimation of ourselves. Romans 12, verse 3, he says, I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. Now what Paul in essence is saying 
is that pride has the effect of making you drunk on yourself. Just as having too much alcohol will affect your senses, so too much pride in the heart will make you drunk with yourself and overestimating your abilities to do things. You'll see yourself as something far bigger, far greater, far more important than you really are. Now, the Word of God doesn't tell us to have this kind of false humility where we reject and ignore all the gifts that God has given us, but rather to have a sober estimation of what God has done in us and through us. But when you or I begin to think that we are the solution to everybody's problems, you know that pride has affected your thinking. If you, if you think you are the solution to every problem, you have missed the fact that often you yourself are the problem in many situations. We are often the problems that need solving rather than the ones that are going to solve everybody else's problems. If, if you know that you're a sinner in need of a savior, that consideration should always, always keep us in a position of humility. Now, whatever abilities God has given us, whatever strengths you have, whatever wisdom you've received, give thanks to God for it and use it. But be on guard against this, this unsober consideration of yourself. And then the final consideration of pride that we see is that in verses 7 through 8. I'll read these two verses again. Now it came to pass after 40 years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go to Hebron and pay the vow which I made to the Lord. For your servant took a vow while I dwelt at Geshur in Syria, saying, If the Lord indeed brings me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. This is one of the scariest manifestations of Absalom's pride. Absalom is setting up a situation in which he is going to gather his supporters at Hebron, and he is going to, from that point, stage a rebellion against King David. And that's what happens in the rest of chapter 15. He sets out, and he overturns the kingdom. He goes into Jerusalem, and he, he, he makes David to flee from the city. But here, Absalom uses a religious vow to the Lord to cover his rebellion. This is a very scary thing, that he would use things like the worship of God to cover his rebellion. And we know that Absalom is a proud man, because if this man feared God, he would never use such an important thing as a vow to God as a cover for his rebellion. And sometimes people will use religious language, they will use aspects of religious worship, they will speak in a very pious way, when in fact all they're out for is their own interests. And that is a very frightening thing, because God takes very seriously how his word is handled. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, the third commandment says. And so people can use religious language, they can use the position that they have in the church to further their own interests, as it was in the case of Absalom. Absalom was planning to overthrow his own father. And we know that Absalom was indeed held accountable for this blasphemous use 
of the vow that he was saying he had made to God, God held him to account for the misuse of his worship. And so Absalom, through and through here, brothers and sisters, is such a warning to us. He, he gives us all these manifestations of pride in a very ostentatious form, not, that we, not so that we can be proud in considering ourselves against Absalom, but so that we can see the very ways in which our pride also will manifest itself as well. Now, we've spent a good bit of time diagnosing the characteristics of pride, using Absalom as a sort of picture. But I want to move in a more positive direction now. And and if, if we can say that we've seen what pride looks like in all of its ugliness, how then do we pursue that grace of humility? This beautiful and desirable grace of humility that our Lord Jesus has has promised to give us, how do we pursue these things? Well, the first and most important application in pursuing humility is to consider Jesus. Nothing will demolish our foolish quest for preeminence as much as looking at Jesus diligently, frequently, constantly. And I want to read from the words of Philippians 2, which I have alluded to. Paul speaking to the Philippians, calling them to humility. He points them to Christ. He says in Philippians 2, verse 3, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Now, Paul, he could have just, when he, when he talked to the Philippians about humility, he could have just whacked them on the head, so to speak, and just said, be humble. Be more humble, Philippians. And we can do that. But what does he do instead of that? He says, look at Jesus. Look at Christ. Behold your Savior. Behold what he has done for you. All of our, our proud wrangling to be at the top, all of our seeking out of our own self-interest, it looks so foolish when we see the humiliation of Christ, who humbled himself to the point of death to save you from your sins, to save you from your pride, that deadly pride. When you start to make yourself, your interests, your desires, the highest priority in life, and you you don't consider others more important than yourself, what do you do? Paul says, he says, look at Jesus. And and you turn back to the Gospels and you, you remember that instance in which Jesus was telling his disciples, he says, I'm going up to Jerusalem, I'm going to die, and on the third day I will rise again. And perhaps within minutes, we don't know exactly how soon it was, but within the, um, the same time, the disciples were debating which of them was the greatest. How could they do such a thing? Why is that recorded in the Gospels? Because it's so relevant, because we do it ourselves, because as we behold the work of Christ, we somehow fall back into seeking out of our own self-interests. We're so much like the disciples. That's why it's there. 
You turn to John chapter 13 and you, you remember that even at the table, the disciples were debating once again which of them was the greatest. And what does Jesus do? He gets a wash basin, he gets a towel, he kneels down, and he washes the disciples' feet. How foolish it was for the disciples or for us to debate which of us is the greatest. And then when you come to that moment in the Gospels of of the cross of Christ, and you see our Lord Jesus enduring the slander, the mistreatment as he was crucified for the sins of his people, you think, how can I be proud at such a sight? Whatever pride you have should be crushed at the cross of Jesus Christ. It makes no sense to behold the the humble, suffering servant upon the cross who humbled himself to such an extent and then to say, I'm going to hold on to my pride. Proud, self-seeking people think mostly about themselves. If you consider yourself and your interest to be the most important thing in the universe, you're not going to think much on Christ. But if you think much on Christ, then your pride will be diminished and destroyed. And so, brothers and sisters, this is the first and the most important application, is to consider Jesus. Now, the second application in the pursuit of the grace of humility comes in Romans 12, verse 16. Paul says this to us. He says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Now this is a verse that Absalom very much needed, and it is a verse that all of us need, that we would not set our mind on high things. But in particular, notice what Paul says when he says, don't set your mind on those things, but what do you do? He says, associate with the humble. He's saying, be in the fellowship, in the company of the meek. Now, where do we find the humble? Well, Jesus said that his people would be characterized by those who are poor in spirit. He says it's the meek that shall inherit the earth. And so we should find the humble gathered together in Christ's church. We should be those who are humble before the cross of Christ humble at the throne of grace, humbled and broken over our sins. That should be the way in which Christ's people are are characterized. Now, the reality is we're we're not always that humble. Sometimes we we get a bit more like Absalom, and we've got to come back to the cross once again and see our, our pride crucified and our boast found only in the cross of Jesus Christ. But it should be the case that you will find the humble in the church of Jesus Christ that you can associate with them, you can spend time with them. And among God's people, sometimes you will find those that are particularly characterized by humility as those who are going through significant difficulty. Find somebody in the church of Jesus that is going through a particularly humbling circumstance, and you will find the grace of humility being cultivated in them. They're, they're going to be learning these lessons of God. God's going to be humbling them and bringing forth good in their lives. 
And it's those kinds of people that you can particularly learn from, especially when you have some particular struggle with pride. You say, I need to find a humble person. I want to listen to how they speak. I want to listen to how they pray. I want to listen to what they, I want to see what they do. Because the grace of humility is being cultivated in them. And often another good way in which you can associate with the humble is to find an older, gray-haired Christian man or woman and spend a lot of time with them. You find a a mature Christian who has been through about a hundred valleys and summited many peaks in the Christian life, and they have seen the faithfulness of God 10,000 times. They've seen the depth of their own sin. They've seen the goodness and the glory of Jesus. They've seen the mercy of God. They've experienced the blessed, sanctifying work of the Spirit. These are going to be people that are going to be very humble because God's grace has been at work in them. And there you will find humility. There you will find someone that you can associate with and learn from because you'll find more of Jesus in them. Well, it's been my prayer that as we saw pride in all of its various manifestations, we would be repelled from pride and attracted to the grace of humility. And we should be, because if we are those who love the Lord Jesus Christ, then we're going to love everything about him, including his humility. And if that is so, then may it be that we adopt the words of John the Baptist when people were asking him why he had come and Jesus had come onto the scene. And what is it that John the Baptist said? He says, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. I've done my work. I I am not the main show here. I want Jesus to increase. And so may it be in our lives as well that your deepest desire is that Jesus Christ would increase in your life. That we would see that complex and subtle sin of pride further mortified and the grace of humility cultivated. And that in all of this, as Paul says, we would have the mind of Christ. What a precious thing that is, is to have the mind of Christ. And so, brothers and sisters, let us close in prayer asking that God would apply these things thoroughly to our hearts. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this this passage that reveals those things that are at times twisted about our own hearts. We are sinners ruined by the fall, and and we in our pride have at times exalted ourselves above our proper place. Teach us, Lord, to see ourselves as thoroughly dependent upon you. Forgive us, Lord, for the various ways in which this pride has manifested itself, and I pray that you would grant us the grace of humility. Lord Jesus, make us to be like you. Set us free from this constant focus upon ourselves and our self-interest so that we would look to the interests of others. And help us, Holy Spirit, to set our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, to consider his ways at all times, to be conformed more and more to his image as we behold him. Transform us that we would be the meek and lowly servants of the Lamb of God.